Welcome to Radio Utopistan, to our dinner table, playground and community, to the radio that interconnects visionary people and bold ideas from around the world. My name is Elisabeth Weidt. I'm a journalist and happy to be able to present some constructive news to you for a change, some inspiring people and hopeful aspects on rather devastating topics. Last episode was about oil, money and the climate crisis and about Melinda, who is suing her government in Guyana. Since, and kind of because of this last episode, she got in touch with Alberto Acosta in Ecuador. He is the ex-best friend of ex-president Rafael Correa and was the leading figure within the Yasuni National Park Initiative. Maybe you've heard of it, a revolutionary idea between Ecuador and the global community. Ecuador, therefore, should not take out its oil in the Amazonian rainforest. But then... You know. I will tell you more about it at the end of this episode if you're interested. Today we also talk a little bit about nature, but mostly about language and perception, and about how to engage in constructive debates. Because today we meet Kübra Gümüzay, a journalist and activist in Hamburg, Germany. And if you don't put a lot of resources into debates that will pave the way for the future, you don't pave the way for the future. That, that's how it works, right? You, you can't expect to the future for the future to just happen to you. It doesn't work that way. The future isn't something that happens to us. It is the consequence of our today's action. Kübra is 32 years old, writes for various magazines and newspapers and just published her first book, Language and Being. She co-launched several campaigns against racism and sexism and spoke on many conferences and panels. In 2018, she was listed one of the 30 under 30 in Europe by Forbes magazine. Deconstructing things is not the same skill set that you need to build something. That is a different skill set. And it's also a skill set that will make you much more vulnerable, right? Deconstructing something that someone else has built, pointing out flaws, pointing out blind spots is so much easier than working at constructing something that tries to do things better. Kübra studied political science in Hamburg and London. At the beginning of this year, she published the book Sprache und Sein, Language and Being. Huge, huge topic. And a bestseller. Now she's working on the next book. Guess the topic. In one sentence, what's your utopia or in two sentences? Ah, my utopia. I'm currently in the process of trying to answer this question, so I won't be able to offer you two sentences. But all I can say is talking about it and sharing ideas about the world we wish for is the only way to pave the way for that world to come. I think training our brains, muscles to propose things and also live with the danger of not knowing if your utopia might be someone else's dystopia. I mean, just because we offer something else to what is present doesn't mean it'll be better. On a rainy September day, we meet at Eden, a co-creation space for, quote, visionary women and a strong international community, as it says on their website. Kübra is one of the founders. 
still smells like freshly painted. Warm colors, wooden tables, industrial atmosphere. Kubra is wearing a salmon-colored headscarf, which perfectly matches the bright red wall. In one of the rooms there are still flowers on a long table, left from the very first dinner event. We sit down in a light and bright office space. In the background you can hear the underground sometimes. It's like a way of looking at the world. If you just read the book, it sort of is a challenge in that moment. And after that, you might be maybe still stuck in, in a positive way in that framework and are able to see things differently. But I think, as in most political books, it needs a conversation. You need to implement it in um, different contexts and different debates to sort of see how it can enable you to sort of progress, right? And that's what we are about to do here in this episode. We don't recap Kubra's book, but we see where its ideas and insights take us. It's a brilliant book. At least that's what I say. And some others might like it too, because it has been a bestseller for months now. Not yet translated into English, unfortunately, but that won't be long. What I especially liked while reading is how Kubra's love for language pours out of every page. I studied literature and language, and not one professor or book could spark my fascination for language and being, like conversations with friends did, or now this book by Kubra. Maybe because those professors didn't speak and live in three languages like Kubra does. Turkish, German and English. Turkish, her family language, for her is the language of love and melancholia, she writes in her book. German, she was born in Hamburg, the language of intellect and longing to her. And English, she spent some years in London and Oxford, is her language of freedom. But these attributes are changing, she says. One of the things in the book that I didn't initially plan to write, it just sort of happened while I was doing my research. And then I've always heard about from friends who write uh, novels that this happens, that the book sort of, you know, has its own character. And it's like, you know, I want to have this character or this plot change and plot twist, and then it just happens and you have to follow it as a writer. But I didn't know it could happen to a non-fictional books, so I thought it was just for fictional books. But it happened with this book as well, and the, the Museum of Language was a picture that sort of appeared after having done a lot of research. And then at one point, um, getting lighter and lighter, and you know, it was brighter and brighter and brighter, and all of a sudden I could see the room. And in that room there was the Museum of Language. The Museum of Language. This is an image Kubra came up with to describe the hierarchies behind our language and therefore behind our debates. The ones with power name the ones without power. They put them into glass cases, like in a museum, and give them characteristics. The Muslim woman, the refugee, the black man. Their multidimensional nature gets lost in generalizations. It gets interesting when the ones who are given names try to get out of their glass cases and say, hey, I'm more than what you see in a Muslim woman, for example. And on the other side, when the ones who are used to giving names and attributes are all of a sudden given names and attributes themselves, like the old white man, 
I guess you've experienced what happens when you talk about the old white man or even call someone an old white man. I love using visual images to describe abstract concepts that you can't grasp physically. Another image that I've had in my head was like, you know, there's this big, 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 big building with dozens of thousands of rooms and many haven't been opened yet. And so with every research you do, you open a new room and you enter. And honestly, I was scared at one point that I wouldn't know how to open that door and be stuck in that room and won't be able to go back to civilization and explain what's happening there. And I could imagine myself being one of those people on the streets who are like shouting around like... It's all constructed and it's all an illusion. You know, like I could literally imagine myself being that person. So sometimes I would ask my husband to, uh, come, you know, move into my head and go along with me because I was so scared to go on my own. So now I just leave you with the rest of our conversation. We talk about mushrooms, conflicting truths, Muslim women, Kubler is one herself. We talk about stones with souls and about how to engage in debates in a way that humble perspectives get more attention than brutal statements. Enjoy, and if you like it, please share with a friend who could need some utopian inspiration. Your book came out in the beginning of this year, and now it's September, and so many things happen, mm -hmm. not just Corona, but also Black Lives Matter. I somehow have the sense we already talk in a different way now than we were talking in, in January about things. We are more alert or more sensitive about using the words. Or is it maybe just in the circles where mm. we move and where Black Lives Matter took place? Or Would you write the same book today? If you started today writing a book on language and being? Uh, I think it would uh, mostly be the same but I would add a few more things but I think what has globally happened over the last couple of years is you know one of the theories of the book is that the political discourse is not just uh, a competition between certain ideas but also a set of glasses we're looking at the world right it's about whose eyes do we choose to look at the world from, you know, whose eyes are the norm, the framework, the objective perspective, the neutral perspective. And for a long time it was a Western, male, uh, white, privileged, heterosexual, you know, able-bodied view on the world that sort of presented and explained to us what the world is, how it functions, what is important, what is not important, what needs to have a name, what can keep remain unnamed. And they decided sort of what we see and what we don't see, what we find relevant and what we don't find relevant. But in the last couple of years, through social media, through blogs, through the internet, we've experienced the privilege to look at the world from completely different eyes and you know openly subjective eyes where they're not like pretending to have the objective absolute truth but rather 
challenge what we see or, or perceive as neutral through looking at the very same thing through a completely different perspective, like from a perspective of someone who isn't able-bodied and who would describe a building that is not accessible to him or her in a completely different way than someone who doesn't even think about it because he is able to access that building. And what you could see then was the impact of whose eyes do we look through to describe the world, how important and how powerful that is. And we sort of got used to looking at the world through different eyes over the last couple of years. And one of my theories about why Black Lives Matter has had a different... Because all of these murders have been happening for years now. It's nothing that just, you know, it's not the peak time. Nothing really happened that was any different from what was happening in the last couple of years. What changed is that we got used to look at the world through a black American and feel their fear, feel their anxiety and realize that the safety that the police portrays to white Americans is not the absolute truth, that there is another truth to that reality and it's more complex. And we have sort of, over the last couple of years, through blogs, through tweets, through films, movies, literature, uh, art, music, have been able to get used to a different set of eyes to look at the world. And that has had a major impact because you're, um, before that person telling you that they are scared, you feel it because you know how to look at the world through their eyes. Obviously, you don't know what it's like to be them, just like I don't know what it's like to be a white man. But I'm used to look at the world through his eyes. I know how the world looks like, looks like you know, through his eyes because movies portray the world through his eyes. I know how they look at women. I know how they look at people like me. I know how they look at different countries and other countries and continents and other religion. So um, I know how I am being looked at. But um, looking at the world through marginalized eyes, as we have experienced over the last couple of years, through a lot of resistance and work and effort and fights from black Americans, we've been uh, able to have a more complex view on the US. And I, and I think that's, um, that has a lot of impact. You know, people unconsciously being conscious about the fact that there isn't one absolute way to look at things, that two very conflicting things can be true at the same time, as in the police being your friend and you know providing safety, but also being the aggressor, the one profession you're most scared of that threaten your life. And you know this is like a day and night, but it's true at the same time. And I feel that this is something scary to many people who are used to one absolute truth about everything. Uh, but we now have a generation of people who are able to navigate themselves through the complexity of the world, 
who don't necessarily need one absolute way of looking at things, but confuse the different perspectives to one. And, and that is the challenge of plural societies that we live in. It is not about one set of eyes winning over the other, where one is the winner and all others are the losers. But the challenges we, save as, um, we face as plural societies is how do you put them together like a puzzle? And then all of them can be still true, but maybe it's a little truth and the other truth is much more bigger. Uh, you know, just like, you know, I, I have been very much engaged in my youth in debates about whether Muslim women are oppressed or not, because I'm, I myself am a Muslim woman. And usually I was invited to sort of be, you know, the example for, you know, not all of them oppressed, see, you know, and, and then we're fighting over are they oppressed or not. And at one point I just thought to myself, it doesn't make any sense to engage in this debate because it both are true at the same time. There are women who are being oppressed. There are women who are being forced to dress a certain way, live a certain way, behave a certain way, believe a certain way. And there are also women who are free from all of these pressures or who are not completely free from because, you know, who is free uh, from any pressure on this planet, but um, who are much more emancipated, who uh, make decisions for themselves, who don't face the very same oppressions that some others face. And I don't want to wipe over all these women just so my reality or the reality of women like me is the one that wins over the others. But I want a space where all of these can be true at the same time and where people understand that it, no person does necessarily have to be oppressed and, and in need of you know, a saviour um, just because this person is dressed a certain way. But when we look at our debates, when we look at our public discourse, it's mostly about one side winning, when in fact we should all sort of chip in and contribute the pieces of puzzles we have to put them together and create a great understanding of reality and what we're facing. Mm. Yeah, and it's also, like you say, mostly that the loudest voices are those voices who are talking that way, who are talking in those stereotypes, like all Muslim women are oppressed. Or then the other side says, no, all Muslim women are free and Islam itself is just the freest religion. Yeah, around. it's the religion of peace. And yeah. yeah, the reality is much more com complex than these yeah. debates are. Yeah. Did you already find... Of course, there are more than one way, but did you find a way for yourself maybe to break those patterns and stereotypes to, to have a different discourse that not only those people, or not, not only, that, see, yeah. I'm also talking that way now, <laughs> but that the loudest voices or the, the voices most people are listening to are not the voices that have those absolute truths where we all know it's not true that there is an absolute truth. You also work as a journalist and the easiest way to sell a story is to have a conflict in that story, to have a protagonist and to have an antagonist. And at the end, 
we have a solution and everybody's happy. But you know, the, 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 you know, the most brilliant piece of journalism that I've seen are those who show the complexity of the conflict and it's not easy to have one solution. And those have left the biggest impression on me. You know, I become suspicious, suspicious when they're like, and then this person has spread love and all of the conflicts have been resolved. You know, obviously there are situations where it works, but oftentimes it doesn't, like with the theory of, um, I don't know the English translation, but it's like when you are in contact and in touch with your enemy, you... Um, you know, become friendlier and your prejudices prejudices are being reduced. And da, 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 da. It is not true all the time. There are so many theories proving this theory wrong. It can work at times, but it's not necessarily the only way. You know, bringing people, enemies together in a room is not necessarily going to prevent people from killing each other, right? Or hating each other. And, and it can al always just lead to them seeing that person as an exception, but still remain with the rule that people who look like X, Y are my enemy. Um, so, but, you know, you've asked, what can we do? And, and I think there are individual things we can do. But in the end, it's a structural problem because it is not a coincidence that the loudest voice, that we perceive certain voices as loud And the reason for that is is not that there are like a certain you know group of gatekeepers who then decide oh we're not going to listen to people who talk about refugees as rapists, but it's um, the architecture of social media of different platforms that sort of gives them a larger and larger platform, and because provocative statements and provocative and aggressive language is rewarded with attention and, and why do we give attention to people who are provocative and aggressive because offline what would what we do is if someone was provocative and aggressive to someone else in a verbal way or maybe even in a physical way we would step in right in an ideal world at least but uh, we would step in to sort of show that we're not that we don't agree with this kind of behavior we would all communicate through language through the way we look at them through our body language through different levels that we don't agree with how this person behaves And this is how we shape our norms and how we communicate to each other, how we should behave with one another. And so that's why we are appalled. That's why we show how appalled we are if someone says something offensive. You know, this, right? Or this, you know, raising your eyebrow or shaking your head or looking at someone, you know, like you would look at a child who misbehaves, right? Online, this doesn't work. Because with every provo provocation, this person just accumulates more eyes looking at him or her. 
and this person gets more and more attention doesn't lead to him or her changing her behavior or his behavior it leads to this person having much more eyes looking at him you know uh, collecting sort of all these sets of eyes and then and then the audience grows becomes larger and larger and larger to an extent where we sit here together on, on, at this table and wonder why they, where there are so many loud, destructive voices. And unfortunately, we think that attention means a person is relevant, but one person having a lot of attention doesn't necessarily mean that this person or this person's opinions are relevant, just like a child who misbehaves and is loud and requires everyone's attention is not that child who's the most relevant, right? We know that, but unfortunately we don't use that knowledge in our public and political discourse. And so there's that, and there's only so much you can do against a structure where people who are provocative and aggressive and have the violent language profit from. And then again, it's not only... Like, I don't see these people as isolated human beings who sort of misuse this architecture. I think there are dozens of incentives to behave that way. Even people who would call themselves quite nuanced and maybe intelligent and well-educated behave that way. Because that's what you're incentivized to do. People who behave that way are the norm and... Everyone else is different despite the norm, despite the architecture, despite the incentives. So I think we should definitely have a conversation about how are we being incentivized to talk to one another on social media, on the internet, in, in the architecture of the internet. But then again, individually, what, it, what is it that we can do? And I think one relevant aspect of how we behave and talk to one another is what kind of debates do you engage in? It just doesn't make sense to engage in debates where we discuss whether people should be saved while they're drowning in the sea or not. You should not engage in such a debate. Just a short explanation here. In 2018, a well-known German newspaper, Die Zeit, had a pro and contra debate about whether drowning refugees shall be rescued in the Mediterranean Sea by private sea rescue ships or not. Oder soll man es lassen, it said. Meaning something like, or shall we just leave it? You should not engage in that question. You shouldn't reward this question with your attention and your intellect and your time and your knowledge because then this question becomes a relevant question. Don't do that. Rather ignoring the question than answering it with a no and explaining why a no. But no, it's, uh, it's asking how can we save people? Like, I, th I think at the moment we engage in debates where the fundamentals or the fundamental values of our societies are being questioned, we are engaged in, in disruption, we are engaged in, uh, in a destructive discourse where all we can do is lose I mean what what kind of success is it to, ma to have managed a debate on whether to save people from drowning in the sea or not like it, 
if you if you manage to convince people over, how is that a success? That's basic. You know, success would be mobilizing more people in you know investing more money in, in saving more people or you know everything beyond that would be a success but it's it's not a success to prevent things from getting worse that is not success that makes us the conservative if we engage in these kind of debates all we do is make sure things don't get worse that is not success success is to ask questions that will allow us to think ahead into the future where we are the ones who set the agenda set the topics and allow people to think about a more just future and not just a future where hopefully things haven't gotten worse that is not a vision to fight for that is not utopia right if all we do is trying to prevent a dystopian future you are not being successful you are being reactive and one of the things that sort of shocked me uh, because I didn't expect things to be set out so bluntly and obviously as uh, one of the chief advisors of former president of the United States George W. Bush um, uh, chief advisor said in a statement towards the investigative journalist Ron Zuskind, I have to paraphrase it, but he said something like, he was talking about reality-based communities and he was dividing the world, you know, and, and he was saying, when we act, we create new realities and those you will study, uh, judiciously as you will. And while you study those realities we will create new realities. And those you will study too. And this is how things will be put into order. We are history's actors, and you, all of you, will be just left to study what we do. Just running behind. Just running behind. All we do is analyse things after they've happened. Yeah. We don't set the stage. We analyse the stage. Yeah. Yeah. And while you were saying that we should not engage in those questions that even question our core values of humankind and societies. There is, I think it's from psychology, this thought pattern that the more you engage into something you're fighting, the bigger it becomes. Something like you, you are not allowed to think of the pink elephant in the room and then there is this huge elephant in the corner all the time. So the more and more energy you put into it and thoughts, the more you want to throw them out of your life, the more they come into your life. And that's, I think it's kind of the same effect, right? Yeah, and you're also talking about this intellectual cleaning lady yeah, yeah. thing. It's, it's something similar, right? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was quite frustrated after many years where I've been engaged in these debates to at one point realize that my role was, I called it, an intellectual cleaning lady. You know, someone else would make a horrendous statement and then I would be invited to the show to sort of, you know, bring some, make some sense uh, of it and bring in some basic human decency. But, you know, what kind of role is that, right? You're not setting the agenda. You're not making people shift their world who they are. Making people shift their world who they are. Questioning basic human decency and you're trying to save some of it. And... As important as that is, it is not sustainable. 
Yeah, and you're also always in the in the role of the reacting person. Re right, right. You, you're never really active doing something. You're only just yeah, like you said, cleaning behind them. Yeah, yeah. You you are always behind and. And again, I'm not saying that one should never react to horrendous statements and racist statements. You know, I'm not saying that one shouldn't engage in that at all. All I'm saying is it should be put into perspective, right? All I'm saying is how much of our resources do we put into reactive debates and how much of our resources do we put into debates that will pave the way for a more just future and it, it is it is basic math right it's how how much of your resources and that is time that is knowledge that is attention um do you put in certain debates and if you don't put a lot of resources into debates that will pave the way for the future you don't pave the way for the future that, that's how it works right you, you can't expect to the future for the future to just happen to you it doesn't work that way the future isn't something that happens to us it is it is the the consequence of our today's action right that the climate crisis didn't just happen we caused it Racism doesn't just happen. We caused it. We cause it and still to this day. And so it is not enough to criticize the, the, the present. It is not enough to highlight a problem. We also have to seek ways to find a future where these don't exist. And it's difficult because we... You know, in the beginning we talked about deconstructing things. It's a skill set. But deconstructing things is not the same skill set that you need to build something. That is a different skill set. And it's also a skill set that will make you much more vulnerable. right? Deconstructing something that someone else has built, pointing out flaws, pointing out blind spots, is so much easier than working at constructing something that tries to do things better. And again, I'm not saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't criticize unless you have something better to offer. I don't think that any one individual is able to construct something on his or her own. I'm also not saying that people should only you know, criticize something when they also have a solution, when in fact it's it's a collective effort. And most of the time, unfortunately, we leave raising an issue to those where the issue is most pressing, right? Those who are most marginalized, most uh, violently, deadly affected by our actions are those who raise their hand and, you know, ask and wonder, you know, is it possible to live in a different way where lives are not in danger, where we are not being murdered, exploited, oppressed? You know, it would be cynical to then tell them, you know, oh, what else do you have to offer? It's a collective effort. And people who raise an issue are not responsible to also offer a solution, just like young children and, and kids today who go on the streets and march for 
Fridays for Future, who are, who are scared of their own future, they don't have to offer a five-step plan for politicians to manage the climate crisis. All they have to do is raise the issue and that job is done. It's the job of the others to come up with solutions. It's a collective effort. And so what I'm advocating for is that we, as those who have the privilege to not only raise issues, but also have the resources to you know, take the next step from dismantling or deconstructing an issue or a conflict to thinking about ways where things could work differently. And, and again, that's make, that makes you very vulnerable because that puts you in a position where you are being criticised in a much more in a much different way than you would be able to be criticized previously because you know cri- being criticized and how you criticize some- something is so meta mm-hmm. right but it is a lot easier to be criticized for something you suggest mm-hmm. uh, for for a solution you offer here i think we need to develop a culture where a discourse a framework where we don't, we dissociate people from their suggestions. Not to say it doesn't matter who says something, but rather to center what is being said so that no one can lose, but everyone wins. Just like the quantum physicist and philosopher David Bohm says about how a discourse or a dialogue should work. He says... If someone makes a mistake in a discourse, that, that doesn't mean that this person has lost. It means everyone has won. Because then you gain a new insight. Oh, that doesn't work. You know, it's like how it's being done in chemistry or in biology, like any other field of research where one of my friends is, is a microbiologist. And, and what she does all day long is the same experiment over and over again like she does a zillion mistakes mm-hmm. and wait she just waits for the for that day where it works yeah try and error no? yeah and yeah. trial and error is, yeah. is, is just basic science yeah. and and that's what we need in our discourse yeah. you know you offer stuff you, you yeah. suggest things not to portray yourself as the hero who solves and, and finds the absolute solution or truth to whatever conflict you're discussing but rather you chip in right you contribute and you center not humans but the the topic you are talking about but in the beginning you asked me what I would have written differently you know looking back at this year and you know it's not true for the US but I think it's true for Germany and many other Western countries, where in those first two weeks of the pandemic, we were witnessing how this abstract danger, because it's not physical, right? It doesn't manifest in a person or in in an object, right? This virus is an abstract thing, right? You can't see it with your bare eyes. And then also it is a threat that is not limited to one field of research or limited to one field of, you know, one industry or uh, one type of people or a group of people, but is something that affects 
everyone, all fields, from politics to science to music and culture through logistics, education, like everywhere, all institutions are affected by it. And what we saw was in those first few days the humbleness that was suddenly visible in the face of a pandemic that uh, goes beyond your abilities and you were not as head of whatever ministry you were not able to you know foresee what the ultimate consequences of your actions would be you could make assumptions and suggestions but at the end of the day Um, most of them were saying, you know, in two weeks' time we'll see if this has worked or not and then we'll have to reevaluate. Or they were saying things like, you know, based on current insights from science, we can say blah, blah, blah. And that kind of humbleness is what we should always present and what that uh, the way we should always act because... In any given time, you never truly know what the detailed consequences of your actions are. Because whenever you deal with humans, you know, you do one thing and assume to, you know, you do A and you assume to then receive B, but most of the time you receive something from B to Z, right? That's how the complexity of the world is and what we're facing. And, and that's the reality of our world. And so what I would add, looking back, is that we are indeed capable of showing humbleness in a debate about the future of our respective societies, that we are able to live with the consciousness for the limitedness of our knowledge, that we are able to center a topic rather than human beings as the heroes and solutions to um, problems. But then again, this only lasted for a few days. And then again, it was about, what about the freedom of this and that? And then I just don't get to why we have so much of an obsession with individuals, why we always have to personify problems, but also solutions. You know, we need heroes and you know, devils and but certain dynamics always sort of shape how we talk about things but those first few days gave me a lot of hope and if we are capable to talk about such an abstract topic like this virus and this pandemic why can't we talk about racism, sexism, the climate crisis in this way where different representatives of different institutions all come at the table to think about what is our responsibility what can we do to save as many lives as possible what can we do to prevent this pandemic from spreading further and apparently we are able to do that it's just a matter of will and resources and effort yeah and apparently it somehow also seems working Because the countries where we saw this humble approach of how oh, we don't really know what to do, rather we are a bit careful now, like here in Germany or New Zealand or Taiwan or whatever countries, they are quite fine now. And countries where there were leaders who said, oh, I know what we do or there isn't even a virus or whatever, like in Bolsonaro and Brazil and Trump. And so it's not a matter of who is 
the loudest, you can also see that it works. Yeah. I mean, it, it is just the right thing to do, to learn as you move, right? Mm. Like, what a pitiful life you'd have if you would pre pretend to have known everything from the start and just stick to what you knew at the beginning of a road. What a pitiful life if you don't open yourself to live on the go, on this road, to learn, study, be in awe of the complexity and the richness of this world. What a pitiful life that is. And we also now see how dangerous that is. Um, but again, you know, I don't see these people as exceptions. I think we are incentivized to behave that way, right? And when you read books about how to behave in business, yeah. in, business in the business world, right? Push your idea, you know, behave, you know, there's a certain habitus that we incentivize to people to adopt, right? And um, never show vulnerability. Yeah, never question yourself, you know, never be in doubt or you know, always uh, push yourself into the center, get the attention, portray yourself as the heroes. In that kind of culture, these kind of people are what you, these are the products of our society. Yeah, they didn't fall from heaven as a as a sort of uh, disease to us. They are the products of our respective societies. When we criticize them, what we should in fact do is criticize the structures that produce these kind of people. They are who we are. And yes, they maybe incorporate many of the... Um, problems of our societies, personification of, of many of these problems, but they are not the producers mm. of these problems. Mm. Our societies are. And I and I always find it very destructive in our debates. I mean it just doesn't not only applies to this current pandemic, or when you talk about you know sexism or racism, there we are always very quick at personifying or, or seeing a certain person as the personification of a problem that you know Harvey Weinstein being in prison doesn't stop the industry in Hollywood from being sexist it's just easier I guess to understand or to project the evil or the problem into a person and then you take that person out yeah, or also yeah. the criminal or the evil terrorist then this person is gone and the problem is gone and we don't have to think about it anymore but to realize that it's part of our system of our society of our communities it's a much more uncomfortable truth to accept because then you also have to do something right yeah and, and you have to look at yourself yeah and, and wonder how you have contributed to that kind of culture and it is an illusion it is it is an illusion to believe that oneself that yourself is free from the structures you grew up in I know I'm flawed. I know I reproduce uh, flawed ideas and flawed oppressive structures. I am not free of the air I breathe and the water I swim in and the structures I live in. I am not free from any of these. And that is the reality we should all face. None of us are perfect. None of us already live in that utopian world where no one is being exploited or oppressed and where we live in tune with nature. 
we in our societies are all part of these exploitative um, structures and and that is where the debate begins that's not where it ends this is where it begins we are all flawed we are all part of this how can we change the structures so that the products are different how can we change the structures so that we incentivized to live in a different way and that is the only sustainable debate that is worthwhile engaging in because every other debate does not get to the source and that's why I wrote this book I mean you know you would say oh you know there's a lot of lack of humbleness to write a book named uh, language and being, right? And there are millions of bookshelves about it since centuries already. Yeah. How bold of you, yeah. yeah. But, um, but I think it's the only way, right? To go, mm-hmm. what I wanted to do when I was just starting this journey is I wanted to dig as deep as possible until I would reach something, you know, the hardest thing I could reach that would sort of resemble a structure and I would until I would hit a wall and that wall to me was our language and I was wondering how the architecture of our language incentivizes us to speak in a certain way about certain minorities and marginalized groups how the architecture of our language incentivizes us to have these destructive debates Because I don't think that asking people to be more kind and nice and da-da-da to each other will cause change. I don't think that asking individuals... I mean, surely that doesn't have an effect. But it's always just a corrective to a problem that still will keep keep existing. Yes. And, And, for instance, it's not in the book what I'm about to say, but... um, I think it, it beautifully highlights the power of language and how um, how limited our view to the world is for, based on the language we speak. And, you know, I talk about this language, but I don't give that example. It is the, the language of the citizen Potawatomi in, in Oakland and in the U.S. and in an indigenous community you know, as many indigenous communities exploited, murdered uh, for centuries, where the uh, languages go distinct. And um, Robin Wall Kimmerer is a biologist who studies, who belongs to this community and studies this language. And she named one word that that left a huge impression on her and on me as well, because. This word, purpoi, uh, I don't know how it's being pronounced, but you know that's how you how, how I read it, and uh, and this word means basically describes the force that makes a mushroom grow overnight from the earth towards the sky, right? And and this word sort of bes- describes this force, mm. and it's such a magical word because when you look at it. It, it forces you to look at the world through the eyes of the earth, right? Usually when you talk about plants growing, it's like, you know, you, you look at it from the human perspective. 
and it grows up to you, right? Or you watch it grow, but you don't look at that plant from the perspective of of the earth. And um, in that language, you don't talk about plants as it, right? As you wouldn't talk about human beings as it. It's it's disrespectful. And in this language, uh, plants uh, are persons as well. So you don't talk in this disrespectful way. And Robin Wall Kimmerer describes a situation where she asks her students, environmental studies students, to name uh, to, to answer the question: Do you love uh, the earth? And they all say, you know, they do, and they describe how uh, and how so. And then she asks, does the earth love you back? And she describes the discomfort in the room because in that moment you realize you're not an anonymous person on this planet, but, you know, you're not the only one who can love the nature, but nature has an agency as well and it can deny your love based on your behavior and she sees you she sees you you are you are someone who is in a relationship to this person earth and if you are neglectful if you are disrespectful if you're exploitative you can't expect the earth to love you back and it's just the grammar of this language that makes you see the world different. It's, you know, beyond those words, just the grammar, perceiving nature, plants as persons rather than objects. And that maybe would allow us to think differently about climate change and the crisis we're facing. Mm, So that's why I chose such a broad topic, such a, you know, big title, because I think that's where we need to go to. And I'm not, you know, in my book, I write several times that I don't claim to know the solution to how to solve our discourse problems or to, like, I ask more questions than I answer. But I think that's where we need to head to, right? To look at our structures rather than at the symptoms to be able to pave the way for a more just future. Yeah, I read it as a very humble book, even though it touches this very huge, broad topic of language and being. I mean, what else is there out there than language and being is everything, no? And yeah, like you said, to go from further apart, to go really deep, to, to see. I mean, you have to go far away to see it, the whole picture, mm-hmm. right? And I had the privilege to spend some time with Quechua in Latin America, and they also they have... A similar perception of the world, I think, like from those people that you were talking about, because also the stones have a soul, or the plants have a soul, even the mountains have a soul, mm-hmm. and they have histories and stories. They are telling them that this mountain is in fight with that mountain, and when the weather is this way, then they have to plant this whatever tomatoes so that it makes them at ease. So it's, I mean, if you see the world that way, then you, you cannot do any destructive things to it. Yeah, I mean, there are so many things human, the human mind can't grasp and is incapable of grasping when you look at it from a very limited perspective. But, you know, my mom would talk to 
the flower, the plants at her home, and then she would call me the next day and say, you know, I talked to this and that plant for an hour or so, and the next day uh, it bloomed. Oh, that's sweet. And um, you know, that to some this might sound like oh, you know, new agey, or or they have this aversion to anything that has a hint of magic, but honestly. That is, if I feel a lack of humbleness, right? How can you be so sure that there isn't more than what we see and can measure? And even you know, we know that things change the moment we measure them. Quantum physics is basically just about that, right? And um, so we have an effect on this world. Things are probably different than we think that they are when we are not looking at it. And so um, I feel it's very empowering to know how limited my perception is. It doesn't it doesn't lead to me feeling you know like I'm diminishing you know my my value or, or my myself. I feel it's so empowering because only when you have an idea of how limited your how your perception is and having an understanding that your horizon doesn't mark the end of the world but only your world the end of your perception knowing that allows you to stand at your horizon and to look beyond you wouldn't be able to do that if you lived with the illusion to have explored everything and that everything is answered and everything is clear no most things are not clear most things are are unanswered and we humans know very little unfortunately i have to ask you the last three questions otherwise you will not get your appointment yeah we already oh shit we're already over but it's just three quick questions Like in, in, in one sentence, what's your utopia or in two sentences? Ah, uh, my utopia. I, I, I'm currently in the process of trying to answer this question, so I won't be able to offer you two sentences. But all I can say is um, talking about it and sharing ideas about the world we wish for is the only way to pave the way for that world to come. And what could people do to engage in your utopia? <laughs> that, that, that question requires the first question to be answered. <laughs> It's already a broad, it has a broad frame. Yeah, but I, I think um, training our brains, um, muscles to propose things and, and, and also live with the danger of not knowing if your utopia might be someone else's dystopia. I mean, just because we offer something else to what is present doesn't mean it'll be better. It might be better in some ways, but way worse in other ways. If it is not uh, an easy path and uh, most certainly not uh, one that uh, is free of dangers. You have a recurring question that's always coming back to you during the process of thinking, writing, doing, I don't know, the last month or even the last years. You have something that's always coming to you? Mm, 
many things, but one thing is uh, that I find a very a very constructive question is always, 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 always questioning how sustainable, good, constructive my work is. And I always feel like, oh, now I've solved it. And then a year passes by and I realize, yeah, I shifted it in a slightly different direction. It's still part of a destructive system. And um, I, I actually thought that I had solved it until this pandemic happened and I realized, no. Uh, apparently my role is to wait for the government to do mistakes to then enter the stage and say things like, oh, you should have done things differently and uh, clearly you've done this and that wrong. But obviously my task shouldn't be to wait for them to do mistakes and but rather to help them save lives and my currency shouldn't be their failure but my currency should be uh, their success in a situation like this. So I think we as writers, activists, intellectuals, etc., not only are responsible to create new ideas, but are also responsible to make sure that they are infused into the systems we are working with. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Kuba. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Thank you. So this was Kubra Gumisai and Radio Topistan number six. Some more links are in the show notes. For example, Kubra's TED talk about the intellectual cleaning lady. Very interesting and inspiring. Check it out. Also a link to my story about the indigenous Quechua ladies in Peru, South America, in English and German. Thank you so much for listening. We are always very curious about what you think. So please tell us, talk to us. Whom else shall we talk to? What topics would you be interested in? And if you like this episode, please share it with everybody who could need some utopia or inspiration. You can also support us via patreon.com. There you can get some additional content and behind the scenes. For example, how it all started. Thank you on behalf of all the team. Everybody will be in the show notes. And some names here. Music, Robert Pilgram. Illustration, Christina Anas. Producer, Anushka Eckert. Proofreading, wonderful Cecilia Marshall, who also has a very special talent on language and being. You can find it out on her Instagram. And now, as promised at the beginning, what about Yasuni? Very interesting initiative. I had the privilege to interview Alberto Acosta in March in Quito, Ecuador. He was a leading figure in this initiative. I was there together with Maria Sturm, remember? The photographer from the episode with Masht Mashadawi, the solar energy engineer from Gaza. Okay, so Yasuni, we'll have Alberto here in a while, in a whole episode one day. Now, in just short, it started in 2007. Ecuador suggested to never touch the oil underneath a certain area of the Amazonian rainforest to save biodiversity and the climate. As a return service, they wanted 50% of the expected revenues from the global community. They made a deal with the United Nations about that. But at the end, it failed. The United Nations didn't really trust Ecuadorian President Rafael Correa, and they didn't get the money together. So, since 2013, the oil is getting exploited in the rainforest. There were some severe oil spills 
lots of nature has been destroyed. And we, every year, release more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than when this initiative started. So where are the constructive news then? Tja, I don't know. But maybe, maybe it's a chance to learn and try in a different way again. They had been very far already. There was a deal, there were signatures. Almost all the world was involved, many countries. Now, more than 10 years later, the urgency of the climate crisis is so much bigger. Maybe something like the Yasuni idea could work today. Think about it and enjoy the rest of your day or your night or whatever. Talk to you soon. Happy if you talk to us and help us produce more shows. Bye-bye.